Um, I'm so blessed to have uh, people in my life that will stand by me, and uh, I'm so blessed for friends, and uh, so thankful for uh, this one pastor in particular that is going to be ministering this morning. Um, I've known him for about two years, and for the past two years, he's been the most influential man of God in my life. Uh, I met him uh, two years ago. I was the MC for a, a conference uh, called Collide Summit, and uh, it was hosted at uh, Pastor Terry's church in uh, West Orange, New Jersey. And uh, there, I, I thought the most impactful part was going to be able to, to, to be with Elevation Worship and Pastor Levi Lusco and, and uh, some of the, the, the featured speakers that were there. Uh, but the biggest impact was Pastor Terry Smith. And he has this one of the most beautiful churches that I've, I've ever seen with my own eyes. Um, I, I have church envy every time I go in there. And, and he tells me, he says, just wait, God's got something, something better for you, Pastor Isaac. And uh, I, I love uh, seeing what's possible. And he has a, a beautiful auditorium, uh, has uh, almost 3,000 people in his church. And uh, we instantly had a connection. Uh, I don't know what it, what, what it really was. I really still don't know what it was. Um, it's definitely not the fact that he's a Yankee fan and I'm a Mets fan. That was, that was not the connection. Uh, but one thing that, that he does do, he loves people. And he, he shares the same passion for people that, that I do and that my father did. And I, I believe that that was the connection, uh, to, to learn how to love everybody everywhere. And uh, we instantly had the, this great connection and uh, he has one of the most diverse churches in all of the state of New Jersey. Uh, he's written two books. Uh, one of them he's going to be speaking on called The Hospitable Leader this morning. Uh, he has uh, three uh, beautiful kids, Caleb, Christian, and Summer. Uh, been married to the, the same woman for, it's actually under debate though because he wasn't sure, 36 or 37 years. Um, and uh, he's a, an, an amazing man, my friend. Uh, if you give a warm Shore Christian Church welcome to Pastor Terry Smith. Come on out here, brother. Thanks, man. Thank you, Isaac. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Great to see all of you. Thank you so very much for that warm welcome. Uh, I am so happy to be here today, and uh, I'm so happy to be here with Pastor Isaac. Uh, my wife, Sharon, and I are big uh, Isaac and Diamond fans. As we've gotten to know them over the last couple of years, uh, I know that you have a sense of how blessed you are to have dynamic, uh, uh, committed, capable leaders like Pastor Isaac and Diamond. And uh, we just, we love them. We love them their family, and one of the things that, that I enjoy about him a lot is that he is in love with the people that he leads. Uh, I don't mean to sound sappy, but I, I will tell you that sometimes as I interact with pastors across the country and have now over many, many years, sometimes what I hear sounds more like complaining um, because, you know, it's, it's never easy to lead a large group of people, is it? There, 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 are, there are always lots of challenges. This is the nature of things. Uh, people, uh, all of us have issues, right? You get enough of us together and it can be interesting. Some, it's always interesting. And I love to be around a leader who, uh, who, who focuses on possibility and potential and, and focuses on the good things. And Pastor Isaac does that. He sings the praises of this church behind your back. He celebrates the other leaders. He uh, feels so positive about your future. And I, I, I just like that. And so uh, consequently, though, we don't know each other. I, I was here a year and a half or so ago. But you probably don't remember me. I, I had a full head of hair then. No, I'm kidding. I didn't really. Uh, <laughs> but uh, we don't know each other. But I, I, I feel like I know you because of, of the way that your pastor represents you. So I, knowing that we have yet another service happening at some point, uh, 1130, I think, right? I probably need to jump in to what I'm going to talk about so, uh, so uh, we can be ready to do this again in a little while. So um, a couple of summers ago, 
My wife, Sharon, and our then 28-year-old son, Caleb, visited Paris, France. Uh, we enjoyed uh, all the richness of the city and, and, uh, and in, particularly, in particular enjoyed uh, some beautiful Parisian meals. And one night we had, I'm supposed to say we enjoyed the museums, uh, and actually I did. But, um, but next to the museums, I enjoyed the food. And one night we had a beautiful dinner at the Eiffel Tower Terrace Restaurant. It was a lovely summer evening, um, and the food was great. Yet the air was heavy with uh, palpable tension because the week before, Paris had suffered a terrible terrorist attack, and the Eiffel Tower had actually been closed for days. And even though it had reopened, it, it, it was still one of those things where you could feel the tension in the air. Well, we enjoyed our meal nonetheless, and as we left, uh, we were out uh, on the, the, the sidewalk of the street facing the Eiffel Tower. There are hundreds, maybe even thousands of people out there all over milling around. Uh, my son called an Uber. I wasn't paying much attention. I just heard him and my wife uh, calling to me, there's our Uber, and I look about a half a block away, and my son is uh, getting into the front passenger seat. My wife is getting into the open, has opened the door and is getting in the car behind him, and I run to catch up. But as I'm opening the door behind the driver and getting in myself, they're both shouting, get out, get out, and they were getting out. And somehow, it was a feat of uh, strength, I managed to get out before I got in, nonetheless. Um, uh, and then this car took off with its siren screaming. And I thought it was unique for an Uber to have a siren screaming. And we stood there and they told me what happened, which was when they went piling in that car, my son looked at the driver and said, are you our Uber? And the driver looked at him and smiled, reached under his seat, pulled out a siren, put it on the dashboard and said, no, I'm this. And that's when they were getting out and I was getting in and we all ended up out. And it occurred to me in that moment how different that scene could have played out. This French policeman in a in the middle of a city on high alert and on the verge of police action in the epicenter of terrorist activity in Europe, somehow assumed the best about the strangers who unexpectedly came falling into his car on that Paris street. Now, my son is a good-looking kid, but he's physically imposing. He's a big guy, a former college football tight end. As an, as an actor, he had recently guest-starred as the bad guy on an episode of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., and he played the part well. The response of that policeman looking at this great big guy getting in his car could have been dramatically different. We laugh about this story now, but it could have had a terribly different ending. And at some point, it occurred to me how different our world would be if each of us assumed the best when we encountered a stranger or even when a stranger imposed themselves on us in some strange way, especially when our background and experiences might give us cause to be angry or afraid and to react in a negative way. Now, obviously, we need to be careful and cautious about terrorist threats and other negative potentialities. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the multitude of encounters that we have with people who are not like us, are not familiar with us. People especially who in our present societal climate might even arouse suspicion. Those we might instinctively keep at a distance and feel the need to protect ourselves from. Strangers. This is what I want to talk about for a few minutes today. I believe that we can overcome division the division in our world, in our homes, in our communities, in our churches, and more, if we simply practice the scriptural admonition to welcome the stranger. 
The author of the New Testament letter to the Hebrews said this, and it's a very well-known passage. He said, remember to welcome strangers because some who have done this have welcomed angels without knowing it. Another translation has it like this. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Now, a stranger, for the purpose of our discussion today, let me just offer some definition to this so that you, you understand, at least in part, what I mean when I say stranger. A stranger is anyone who seems strange to you or to whom you seem strange. Now, it may surprise you to know that you seem strange probably to more people than you would like to admit. So a stranger is anyone who seems strange to you or to whom you seem strange. Now, this can be someone who you do not know or who does not know you, whose background, worldview, or lifestyle may seem strange to you. A stranger could also be someone you do know, but who's from a different nation of origin, race, or ethnicity. Someone perhaps from a different socioeconomic background or educational status, or someone who, God forbid, in today's world has different political views than you do, or, of course, a different faith experience than you do. That's kind of the, kind of the macro idea of what I mean today when I'm talking about a stranger. We could also get more micro, and I, I think you would understand if you've been married any length of, of time, that perhaps a, a stranger could be at least in certain seasons of your life and marriage your spouse. You're, you're sitting next to him or her and you're afraid to nod your head, but as someone who's been married, I think 36 years, um, I know that there are times when I certainly have been strange to my wife and times when she has seemed strange to me. The person you love the most in the world, the person with whom you are most intimate can nonetheless at times seem strange as uh, the author John Gray famously wrote, men are, after all, from Mars, and women are from Venus. Uh, a stranger could be, if you have a child who's entered adolescence, or you've raised a child through teenagehood, I'll guarantee you there are times when that child seems strange to you, and I promise you, you seem strange to your child. A stranger is anyone who seems strange to you or to whom you seem strange. Now, I'm so passionate about this idea that I wrote an entire section about this in my book called The Hospitable Leader, Create Environments Where People and Dreams Flourish. And since Pastor Isaac asked me to talk about this subject today from the book, I want to just take about two minutes and locate this idea about strangers in the bigger context of this book. When I talk about, and then I'm going to dig into the stranger piece, okay? Everybody doing okay? Yeah. All right. Um, so um, I check on people every once in a while to make sure they're awake. Now, I don't mind if you sleep, but don't die on me, all right? All right. So uh, check your neighbor's pulse every once in a while. So uh, a hospitable leader is, is, is defined as anyone who creates environments of welcome where moral leadership can more effectively influence an ever-expanding diversity of people. And so in this book, I offer five welcomes or five sections. The first welcome is called home. That's where I talk about how that a leader has the ability, if they want to, to create an environment that feels like home to the people they're leading. That home is where the heart is warm, and when the heart is warm, people can more easily be led to good and beautiful things. This church practices hospitable leadership beautifully in this regard. You've created an environment that feels like home in a space that's difficult 
to be made to feel that way, but you've done it nonetheless. Congratulations. You are hospitable leaders in that regard. The second welcome is called strangers. I'm going to dig into that a little bit more here in a moment. The third welcome is called dreams. A hospitable leader is hospitable to people and their dreams. A hospitable leader gets up every day not saying, how can I get the people to help my dreams come true? Rather, they say, how can I help the people's dreams come true? It's a big idea. The fourth, and you can practice that in your classroom as a teacher. You can practice that as a manager on the job. You can practice that as a dad or a mom. You can practice that as a CEO. It changes the game when people know that you are hospitable to people and their dreams. The fourth uh, uh, welcome is called communication. And uh, uh, a hospitable leader practices hospitable communication. This is where you create a climate where people feel so safe that you can speak truth to them that is transformative. Whether that's the way a boss gives a review to an employee or the way a pastor shares a message from the gospel, hospitable leaders practice hospitable communication. And finally, and fifth, the fifth welcome is called feast. Hospitable leaders create environments that feel like a feast to their followers, but in order to do that, that leader must live a feast. And so I believe that every person, and particularly people of Christian faith, are leaders somewhere or should be. If you're a mom, you're an incredibly important leader. If, if you're a teacher, if you're a manager, if you're a little league coach, a Girl Scout uh, 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 director, you're practicing leadership somewhere, and all of us, it's provable that all of us can learn to lead well, and when we lead well, we multiply the influence of the good in our lives in powerful ways. And um, I'm blessed that this book's been endorsed by powerful business leaders like Jack Welch, the former CEO of, of General Electric, uh, who calls this a meaningful new approach to leadership, and lots of ministry leaders. So this is the final thing I would say about that. If you'd like a copy, I'd love to sign one for you. I'm not going to get into pricing. We've discounted the books for those of you at Shore Christian Church today. Whether you want one or you want several to give away as gifts or give to the people in your company or whatever. Now let's talk here about three keys then to unlock the power of welcoming strangers. Three keys to unlock the power of welcoming strangers. Here's the first one. It's to see the angel in every stranger. See the angel in every stranger. Now, this is one of my favorite things to talk about in all the world. I love to talk about what the writer to the Hebrews said in Hebrews 13, 1 and 2. Because I love the progression of the thought. Hebrews 13.1 has the writer to the Hebrews saying this, keep on loving each other as brothers and sisters. The King James says it like this, practice brotherly love. Now the Greek word that's translated brotherly love here, or love your brothers and sisters is a word that you all would be familiar with, especially as you're headed towards South Jersey. It's the word Philadelphia. Are there any Philadelphia sports fans in the room? Strangers, see? This is what I mean, strangers. Uh, no, in all seriousness, the word Philadelphia literally means what? Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. We all understand that. We don't usually connect with Greek words, and when pastors talk about Greek words, our eyes cross. But Hebrews 13.1 says, practice Philadelphia. Keep on loving each other as brothers and sisters. But then Hebrews 13.2 says, and don't forget to love the stranger, or according to which English translation you look at, or don't forget to entertain the stranger, or don't forget to be hospitable to the stranger, because by so doing, you might be entertaining an angel unaware. Well, the, the phrase to love a stranger or be hospitable to a stranger or entertain a stranger comes from a Greek word that's called philoxenia. Philoxenia literally means to love loving strangers. So Hebrews 13.1 calls us to a place called Philadelphia. It's, that's home. 
And it, it, it appears that we have to take care of home before we have anything of value to offer the stranger. Home has to do with the care of our own soul. Home has to do with the care of our own family, our own communities, our own business, our own nation. We have to keep loving each other as brothers and sisters. We have to take care of home. But having established that, it doesn't appear that we're supposed to stay there. We're supposed to take care of home, but it's not just supposed to be about home. We, in fact, are supposed to open our home to the stranger. At some point, we have to move from a place called Philadelphia to a place called Philoxenia. We love each other as brothers and sisters, which is challenging enough, if we're honest. But then we're called, once we kind of learn how to do that, we're then called to love people who are not like us, the stranger. Philoxenia. And that word philoxenia is the opposite of the word xenophobia. Xenophobia is an irrational, illogical fear of people who are not like us. See, the fact is that if we follow Jesus, we do not get to be xenophobic. We are commanded, not just in this passage. That would be proof texting. When you look at the whole of Scripture from beginning end to end, this is a, a key part of the heart of God, this idea of loving the person who is strange to us. All the way back, well, in fact, a, 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 a practicing hospitality, which literally means to love the stranger. That's what the word in the New Testament hospitality means. It's the word philoxenia. You see it translated a variety of ways. Practicing hospitality was a requirement for church leaders in the early Christian church. When you read the requirements for deacons, you read the requirements for elders, part of what they had to be willing to do was to open their home to strangers. A variety of New Testament scriptures tells us that a church leader must be hospitable or enjoy having guests in his home. He or she must be a lover of hospitality or a lover of loving strangers. See, we have to realize this again, this comes from the very heart of God. All the way back in the beginning of scripture, in the Old Testament, in the law, in Deuteronomy, God through Moses said, for the Lord your God administers justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger. Therefore, love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Jesus, when he welcomes us into his kingdom, will welcome us in part by saying this, I was a stranger and you invited me in. This is a big idea in Scripture. We could spend all of our time just going through scriptures that point to this being central to how God in his grace thinks about a world that is estranged from him. And how that when we come into right relationship with Jesus, that we're to love strangers, even remembering that we used to be a stranger to God, but now through his grace, we've been accepted by him. It's okay if you want to just practice. You could say amen. amen. Thank you. Now see, there's, this isn't just a mandate. This is also a possibility because we're told that when we entertain strangers, we often entertain angels unaware. See, angel means messenger. and A good angel is a messenger from God, an angel of light. So, so important was this principle in Scripture, what one uh, scholar called the law of hospitality, that the Jewish people actually believed that God might send a literal angel to knock on their door to test whether or not the person in, inside that home really practiced hospitality or was willing to love a stranger. They believed that God would literally do that. Um, um, as a monk named Brother Jeremiah said, we always treat guests as angels just in case. What would it look like every person you see, especially those who seem strange to you, if you assume that they may be an angel sent from God to test your practice of hospitality? It would change our lives, wouldn't it? At least it would change mine. But in a more earthy way, what I've experienced is though I could entertain a literal angel, I certainly believe in literal angels, 
is that what I have experienced is that when I've opened my heart to people who are different from me, strange to me, they often are or become messengers from God to me. God uses them to impact my life and leadership in powerful ways. That's why I see we must say, that's why I say we must see the angel in every stranger. There are people who I now, through Jesus, do life with. People who are brothers and sisters who used to be strange to me and I used to be strange too, who now are in ways that are very literal, messengers from God to me who have expanded my life and my leadership in every imaginable way. Probably the way that I've seen this most played out is through the congregation that I lead. We've been called by people who understand and study these things, the most diverse church in America. It's an amazing thing. We are diverse in every imaginable way. We are uh, Baptists and Pentecostals and Catholics and Lutherans and Methodists and, I'm, you know, name some part of the Christian family. That person's probably sitting at the Life Christian Church this morning. Lots of previously unchurched people, Jewish people who believe in Jesus or are on their way to faith in Jesus. Uh, we are uh, lots of PhDs and plenty of GEDs and people who are just trying to get better at life. We are rich. We are people on the lower rungs of the economic ladder. We are, um, we are probably equal Republican, Democrat, and Independent. It's going to be an interesting year next year during an election to, uh, for churches like ours, and I suspect like yours, to keep loving people who may seem strange to us in terms of their political views. For whatever reason at this time in our history, that seems like the greatest uh, part of strangeness in our world. But this is a reality that we live with. I guess we're going to have to figure out whether we're going to love people who vote differently than we do or not. Right? And, 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 and there's, there's challenge, clear what we're supposed to do. There's challenge around that if we're honest, and it's something that we have to sort through. Well, our church, this is something that's very real that we deal with. Um, um, I could go on and on. Uh, there is not a dominant racial group in our church. Um, uh, we have people from from every imaginable racial background, ethnic background, nations of origin, I don't have time to go through this now, but this is, this is a picture I snapped from the head of the table with our board and elders, and you get a sense. If I talk through it, you get a lot more of a sense of the kind of diversity that, that I live and lead in every day. And what I've discovered is I, I could point to some people at that table who, when I first met them, because we came from such different worlds, I know that I was strange to them and that they had... They had to let down some walls to give me a chance in their lives. And I know that in other ways, they were strange to me, at least in as much as I couldn't understand where they were coming from in their life experience or backgrounds, or in some cases, the way they saw the world. And it's an amazing thing that when, when, when you, you meet someone and you're willing to sit at the table to get to know each other, to love each other, to care about each other, to do life together, to speak truth to one another, how all of a sudden someone who may have seemed strange and whose society would think that you might not have a lot to do with, when all of a sudden that person becomes a voice from God into your life. And I've experienced this so many times, and I want people everywhere to experience it so badly. Now, um, there are a multitude of things. Let me just say that I am an unlikely candidate to lead a diverse church. I didn't figure this out. It's something that kind of happened that I've now tried to understand. And uh, that's part of the reason that I wrote this book, is people want to understand, how did you build such a diverse church? And for years, my answer was just, I don't know. Really, I'm a, I'm a, you may not notice this. I am a white guy. Uh, uh, did you notice that? I am a very white guy. Uh, and just like you should be wherever you're coming from, happy to be who I am and where I'm from. Um, a very white guy from Bible Belt, 
Indiana, suburb of Indianapolis. I didn't grow up in a sophisticated and diverse place like New Jersey or where we're at in the New York City metropolitan area. I grew up with people pretty much like me in every way. Uh, everybody kind of thought the same, went to the same kind of churches. Uh, everybody went to church. Uh, everybody voted pretty much the same. Everything was just the same. And God calls me to, 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 to North Jersey, a suburb of New York City. And uh, somehow or another, 28 years later, I'm leading this church that has grown in this incredible way with such diversity. And I can't imagine, I can't imagine how small my life would be if God wouldn't have given me the grace not to tolerate people who are different from me, that is such a low bar. That is such a non-biblical idea. Toleration is not the goal here. The goal is love. The goal is love. What is it like to love the person who is other than you in significant ways? It doesn't mean that you're no longer who you are. It doesn't mean that you no longer believe what you believe. It doesn't mean that you don't have your own truth, small t truth, which may be why you vote the way you do. It doesn't mean that, that you don't have, you, you don't give up who you are in order to love a person who isn't like you. It doesn't mean that we compromise the truth, capital T truth, the truth that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, the only way to the Father. It doesn't mean that we compromise the moral indisputables of Scripture. It just means that instead of shouting at folks, we welcome people to the table and we create an environment that is warm and welcoming where truth can be spoken and hopefully received. See, you can't influence people who you haven't welcomed. And part of the problem right now in Christianity, frankly, is we think that we're going to influence people by screaming at them. And it is such, God bless my brothers and sisters who take that approach, it is such foolishness. If we have truth to share, let's create an environment where people are willing to hear the truth we have to share. See, Jesus did this. Jesus constantly welcomed people who were unlike him. He, was, he scandalized the religious leaders of his time because of who he would sit at the table with. He was, he was criticized tremendously, repeatedly. This isn't a small part of the story of the gospel. This is a large story of the gospel. He didn't vet who he would allow in who he would, you know, when he went to feed the 5,000, there was nobody standing at the outside of the crowd making sure that everybody obeyed the kosher laws and, and that everybody had washed their hands properly. And he just, he had a miracle to give and he give, gave it to whoever was there and who was hungry. It's really a big idea. He would sit at table and, and be criticized because he spent so much time with tax collectors and the notorious sinners. When you say tax collector now, you think IRS, and that has enough challenges. But, but in the time of Jesus, that was like saying that he was, he, was, he was seen having dinner regularly with Tony Soprano and the whole crew. They were like the mafia, seriously, organized crime. Or, 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 or the, uh, the, the, the women that he ate with, some were known prostitutes. Now, he, 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 he loved them and told them to go sin no more. It wasn't as if that, they, they were to continue in that, but they didn't, they, didn't, they didn't change before they came to the one who could change them. He accepted them as they were. He loved them. He broke bread with them. And he spoke truth to them in a way that they could hear because they were, had truth spoken to them in an environment where they were welcome. So he, Jesus, the only sinless man who ever lived, would do life with people who were completely other than him. Everybody was completely other than Jesus when it came to sin right? 
But not only that, he expanded his influence in a number of ways by people who essentially believed as he believed, but, uh, but who had never been welcomed before. Women had never been welcomed to the leadership of any significant leader in world history, uh, at certainly not a religious leader. Jesus more than doubles his influence because he welcomes women in a way they had never been welcomed before until the New Testament church has, has over half the leaders of the households that are mentioned in the New Testament are led by women. Or look at the way that uh, the New Testament leaders multiplied their influence dramatically by that exclusively group of Jewish believers in Jesus welcoming Gentiles to the table. They multiplied their influence. Or look at the way that Paul particularly welcomed the slave. He condemned slave traders and had the slaves sit at the table with the person the slave served as equals before God. It wasn't just smart. But every time a, a person or a group was welcomed that hadn't been welcomed before, leadership influence was multiplied exponentially. A key for a business leader is to think about what empty seat at the table is an opportunity missed? What group am I missing out of? People who live and lead only speaking to their base, only reconvincing the convinced. The preacher preaching to the choir and the choir singing to the preacher are limiting in ways that are tragic. But when we're thinking about how to get the word out to people who may disagree, who may not like us, who may not have tried us before, who may not be a natural constituency. This is when all of a sudden you start multiplying the influence for good and beautiful things, whether it's in a church context or a business context. Everybody still okay? You know, it's a fun thing to talk about something like this to a group of people who already believe it and are already practicing it. And part of what I love is to be able to give voice to something, to explain something that people are feeling and experiencing. And, 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 and now there's language, perhaps, to put around it that makes it even more powerful. Now, let me ask an important question. What time am I supposed to be finished in this service? I, didn't, I wasn't tracking. You told me last time. You didn't tell me this time. That is dangerous, Isaac. <laughs> No, 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 tell me, just tell me. It's more time than I thought. I think you just gave me five minutes, Isaac. All right. Is everybody still doing okay? Somebody back here said he should be done at 11.05. <laughs> if they're not jobs. They're a stranger. All right, let me tell this. Let me see if I can do this quick. I was impacted a few weeks ago when I had lunch with a woman named Frances Hesselbein. If you don't know Frances, uh, Frances was the legendary leader of the Girl Scouts of America for a couple of decades. She transformed the Girl Scouts. She was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom in the 90s, the highest award, uh, the highest award given to a civilian in our country. She, uh, she's amazing. She was a protege of Peter Drucker, who's the father of modern management, and, and, and Peter Drucker called her the most effective leader he had ever seen, and when he, when he turned the Peter Drucker Institute over to Francis, she's led it for years, it's been renamed the Hesselbein Forum, she's the first woman pictured on the cover of Business Week magazine, she's the first woman and non-military person to chair the leadership department at West Point, I could go on and on, trust me, I could go on and on, she's amazing, but here's the thing that's mind-boggling, she is now 103 years old. And uh, I had lunch with her a couple weeks ago. She, I got a note from her last week inviting me back to lunch. She has been a friend. She endorses my books. We've done some work together. She is amazing. And, uh, but just think about this. 103 years old, she still gets up and goes to her Park Avenue office for work. And uh, we had this beautiful three hours together. It was in, in, with lunch and then sitting in her office and on the pictures, on the wall are pictures of her with every major figure in, in, in American life for many, many, many decades. Every U.S. president, personal friend of hers. And she's so positive. She speaks, finds the, the good in everyone and speaks well of them, telling me stories. Well, anyway, after these three hours, I, I, I'm leaving. I've tried to leave several times and she didn't want me to. 
and uh, she, she's so kind. And um, as we're walking out the door, she says, she says, I want to show you something. Now, again, she's 103 years old. She's moving slowly. Her, 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 her uh, articulation is slow. And um, she's sometimes difficult to understand, but she's sharp as she can be. And she stops and she, behind the door, walking, going out of her office, she goes through some poster boards that are there, and she pulls one out, and it's a picture of the staff of a Girl Scout camp that she led in, as I remember right, 1953, okay? And, and we've been talking about hospitable leadership and some of these ideas, and, and, and this is the last thing she wants to show me. Now, this may sound odd. Now, it's always challenging to talk about race. Forgive me if I, if I, if I, if I don't do it properly. It's so difficult to understand what other people have experienced who are different than you in any way, and I just acknowledge that. I'm just going to tell you what I experienced that day with her. She shows me the picture of this, this Girl Scout camp, of the leaders of the Girl Scout camp, and, and on it, are the, are there, in this group, are three African-American women. And you have to remember, this is, this is now almost a decade before Martin Luther King, you know, changes the world and continues the, 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 the important work that is still ongoing around civil rights. This is, and she says to me, she says, in 1953, I couldn't take one of these women, my friends, my black friends, she says, to any restaurant in this area. And she was so proud of these women who were on her staff, one of whom she describes as her best friend. She didn't have anything to prove to me. I'm a white preacher, right? And I'm bald, and so nobody cares what a bald guy thinks anyway. But this was so important to her. Just check this out. See if you can hear and the thing that's so amazing about that is you said in 1952 there wasn't there wasn't a place that you could take a black guest no. to dinner any place no. in the United States Couldn't, right over here all these nice restaurants I couldn't but that was your camp staff when you this were directing my camp staff where you have Here you have the assistant camp director and my best friend, Rose Hankins. Here is the person responsible for all of the food and Rose was one of the, there were three remarkable people who were black and on this camp staff. Wow. And yet, it's amazing, Francis. Amazing. Thanks for sharing that with me. Now, I, I don't know that I can completely convey to you why that moved me so much. I think it's because of everything she had said that day. It's as if she said to me, this is the thing I'm most proud of. When she was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by Bill Clinton, it was because of her work around women's empowerment and around diversity. It's as if she was, what, what I liked is the intentionality. I, it's as if she was saying, I cared about this. I cared about being able not only to break the glass ceiling myself, but to help other people. In this case, it happened to be around race. But in our case, it could be around any other number of things. Who is the person who is not invited? Who is the person who at this season does not feel welcome? What would it be like for us in the name of Jesus to be the ones who go out of our way to make sure that people who aren't normally at the table are sitting at the table with us? This is not something that's done by accident. 
usually. We don't happen our way into this. We are actively asking the question, what does it mean for me to welcome the stranger? Until Jesus would say to me, I was a stranger. I was that stranger. And you welcomed me in. So, I've kind of gotten a little lost here, guys. I don't know if I've mentioned my second key or not. The first one is to see the angel in every stranger. The second now is to expand your influence by welcoming strangers. And I would go back to this idea that when we are welcoming the stranger, that we're expanding our influence exponentially. And then the third thing and the final thing is that we need to move from hostility to hospitality. Here's, here's my final encouragement to all of you wonderful people. It's that sometimes people see hospitality as kind of a soft con concept. I see hospitality in, in the context of today's world as resistance to the way things are and shouldn't be. Our society is so torn apart. Families are torn apart. Some of it's around our inability to simply discuss our differences about certain things like, like politics and to at least hear the other person explain why they feel the way they do. I happen to have very strong political feelings, frankly, yet I have people on my staff team who feel completely different than I do, and I think they're dead wrong. But nonetheless, I listen to them at appropriate times tell me why from their experience they're doing whatever they're doing. It doesn't mean that I agree. It doesn't mean that I think they're right. It just means that instead of being hostile, I'm hospitable and in fact hope to have the opportunity even around things that are important to maybe even be persuasive. But we can't persuade people to some people who we are antagonistic with. It's like Henry Nouwen famously said, we need to move from hostility to hospitality. And I think that this is one of the greatest needs in the Christian church today. We should be known as the most warm, welcoming place to everybody in our society, regardless who they are. regardless what they think, regardless how they live. Again, that doesn't mean, see, we're no longer a Christian church if we no longer believe the basics of Christianity. We, we can't compromise the truth. And, and, and neither can we compromise when all is said and done, the moral indisputables of Scripture. I'm simply saying that we cannot serve people with the truth that could set them free or the beauty of living a life that's the kind of life that God prescribes in his word and design of life. We can't serve people with that if we're not willing to sit at the table in a way where they feel welcome in our presence. So in Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul talks about how that when Jesus came, he tore down the dividing wall of hostility. Now, we could talk about strangers in terms of people who are outside of the family of faith. But let's talk, let me just close in my last 60 seconds. Let me, maybe 120 seconds, but I'm finished. Let me just close by talking about how imperative it is that we welcome other brothers and sisters in Christ who sometimes seem strange to us. Guys, if you're going to be a part of a church, and especially a church like this, over a long period of time, you're going to have to you're going to have to learn to love people who are not like you, who you disagree with about things. Somehow or another, we come together around the, the, the essentials of our faith in Jesus. And, and the Apostle Paul, and I feel I should say this, in Romans 14 made a distinction between disputable matters and indisputable matters. He said, now concerning disputable matters, brothers, don't argue with each other. 
and then disputable matters were the way certain people were practicing per certain parts of their faith that other people may have disagreed with. There's not time to get into it except to say that in our church, we make a distinction between indisputables and disputables. Indisputable, it's really a limited number of things. It's those you find the indisputables in the Apostles' Creed as it concerns doctrine. These are things that have been believed by people of Christian faith for over 2,000 years. And you find a very limited number of what I like to call moral indisputables, those things that stand the test of time through Old and New Testaments that are clear about the way God designed life and how we're supposed to live. So there are indisputables, and, 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 and those are the things that we coalesce around. But most of our challenges are around the disputables. They're around the hundreds of things where we may have disagreements. You know, is God, in fact, a Republican? Don't answer the question. God doesn't think about himself in terms of being a Republican or being a Democrat. God, I, mean, I guess God's an independent. I, I don't know. But, but, but do you understand my point? We think that way. And, and we have reasons for having the feelings that we have. And we have the right to have the views and the feelings that we have, right? Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying become a non-person who has no views or any feelings. It's just as it concerns disputable matters, do not divide over those things. If we're going to have a church that's unified and does the work of Jesus in today's world, we're going to have to learn to do life with brothers and sisters with whom we have disputes and are able to say, I disagree with you, but I love you so much. And we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And I choose to be hospitable to you, not hostile to you, because I have made a commitment to this. Ephesians chapter 2 says Jesus tore down the dividing wall of hostility. And out of two groups of people who hated each other, Jews and Gentiles, he created one new humanity. When the world looks at the church, when this area looks at shore Christian church, they should see people who it doesn't seem like should be able to coexist in the same room. But somehow or another, God took all kinds of people who were strange to each other, and he created one new humanity. And this thrills the heart of God. And I'm finished. All right. Thank you. When it's all said and done, that picture that she had that she was more, more proud of than anything else, that's what I want to be said at, at my funeral. Man, Isaac loved everybody everywhere. That I was welcoming to everyone. I, I feel like if, if I felt that way, that we all should feel that way maybe. Is that people look at you and say, I always feel welcome at the Walston's house. Even though we don't always agree, I always feel welcome. Lord, we thank you so much that you welcomed us when we were strangers. That we didn't have anything in common. We were bad and you were perfect, but you welcomed us. I pray, Father, that we will do the same for others, especially in this season. That we're not going to shut the door to family members. We're not going to shut the door to, to, to people in our life, but we're going to say we don't always have to agree, but we can sit down and have a meal together and enjoy each other. Pray that that spirit will reign true in all of us. Forgive us where we've fallen short. I pray, Lord, that that unity, we know that it will be precious in your sight. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. God bless you all. Thank you.